Hello and welcome back to Oro Valley Catholic. This is Father John Arnold. The first reading for the second Sunday of Lent is from Genesis chapter 12, and this is what it says. The Lord said to Abram, Go forth from the land of your kinsfolk and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. All the communities of the earth shall find blessing in you. Abram went as the Lord directed him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And so Abram, he's going to found a great family. It's the beginning of patriarchy. And as you know, in American culture, patriarchy is a poisonous word. But I want you to think about it. Is the rule of family, which is what a patriarchy means, the role of the family, is that a blessing or a curse? And so let's talk about that as we consider the transfiguration of the Lord and the rule of families in this week's Oral Valley Catholic. You know, it's always food for thought when you listen to the readings picked for each Sunday as to what the first reading has to do with the gospel. Because when the church picks a reading from the Old Testament, it's always a typology, it's some foreshadowing of the mystery that's in the gospel. And so this week's reading from the book of Genesis chapter 12 is an important bridge moment. It's a change in Genesis. Here's what happens if you have an overview of Genesis. In chapters 1 to 11 of Genesis, you see God's concern for humanity. It begins with humanity's origins in Adam and Eve, the fall of humanity, brother slays brother, and how it ripples out and increases exponentially and violently over the generations until God just decides he's had enough and he floods the earth and saves who he thinks are, you know, the good family, Noah's family. But then the problem starts again until you get to chapter 11, where the descendants of Noah want to build a tower, a tower at Babel. And it goes back to this magical understanding of the religion of Babylon, that this tower reaches to heaven, really what's at the top of the towers in Babylon, the ziggurats, was a temple to up to the chief god. And so it's the idea of going up through these different spheres, these different levels, these different gods, until you reach the ultimate power in the heavens, which is on the Tower of Babel. And that's what uh, God's referring to when he says that they're building this tower to try to reach divinity, which they can't reach. And so he destroys it, and what happens? You have what we have right now, which is all these different languages, all these different nations. And so chapter 12, right after the Tower of Babel, is the reading that we have for the first Sunday of Lent, where God calls Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees, which is, they've actually found, and there's a ziggurat there, it's in the southern part of Iraq. It's one of the oldest inhabited places on the earth. And he calls Abram from his father's house, and he's going to make of him a great nation. And if you remember the reading, it's he's going to give him a people, a land, and he'll make him a blessing on all nations. The people of Israel, Abraham's descendants, because Abram and Abraham are the same person. There's a, 
uh, a transfiguration, a change of Abraham in the story of Genesis, that Abraham is the father of Isaac, the father of Jacob, who's the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so in Genesis chapter 12, this story begins where God changes his focus from all fractured humanity to picking a chosen people, giving them a land, and making them the vehicle of his light to the nations. And that's what the purpose of Israel is and why the uh, Christianity and the Catholic Church in particular is the fruition of God's promise to Abraham and a blessing on all nations. And so we go from a concern about all of humanity to a concern about uh, a family. And that family is there for the benefit of, uh, of the whole world. Think about that and why it is the Catholic Church rooted deeply in Judaism recognizes the family as the most important pre-political um, reality in human existence. What I mean by pre-political is the word political comes from a Greek word for polis, which means city. So cosmopolitan would be basically a city that represents the cosmos, has all the peoples in it. That's what it means to be cosmopolitan. But the root word is still polis for city. And so any city is founded on, a, on families and families working for the common good. Even if you look at the Greeks, and I think of Plato's uh, Symposium, it's about how uh, committing to a family makes you more concerned about your community, more, and if you're concerned about your community in the Symposium, you're concerned about justice, and if you're concerned about justice, then Plato would say you're concerned about the nature of the good, which would be the closest the Greeks get to understanding the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the reality of the good. But it's interesting that so many cultures, like converging lines, are pointing in the same direction of the God that is good. And also recognize that at the root of it is the family. And when you start screwing up the family, um, it's going to screw up the polis, the city, the nation. And so what does Abraham learn from God as this, in this pre-political reality? Because it's very much about the change of a father and who the father and the mother become. Because Abram marries Sarah. Then after they have their son Isaac, you remember God, uh, actually it's Sarai. And then God renames Abram to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah. And they become Abraham and Sarah, the father of nations. Because what makes the, the family work is the child. Because Mom and dad have these finite lives, and the future is really shaped in their love of the children and their preparation of that child to be an adult that will carry on the traditions of the family. And for the Jewish people, what are those traditions? If you were to read through the Abraham cycle in Genesis, starting in chapter 12, then you would pick up the common themes that you would understand as a, as a Catholic. Because we are the heirs of this great Jewish tradition of the family as this pre-political reality to the people of God, um, to, the, to, the, to the rule of God in the world. And so think about these four things that are present in, in Abraham's story. First, Abraham has to learn how to listen and to respond to God in freedom. 
And so he goes from being Abraham, who will basically tell anybody anything they want to hear just to get by, to the Abraham who will sacrifice his son Isaac um, at God's command at the end of the Abraham cycle. Because Abraham is this character that changes dramatically in his ability to listen to and respond to God. And so think of yourself when you were 16 years old. Think of yourself now. Have you learned to listen to God better? One would hope so, uh, especially for Father John. Um, then the second thing, after learning how to listen to God and try to orient your life um, to the voice of God, at the heart of it is a concern for justice. And justice is right relationship with God and right relationship with one another. And so the journey that spiritually Abraham me makes in response to God's call, which is in Genesis 12, is he learns to get past what's good for Abram to what is good for the family and all his descendants, what's good for the community. He goes from being self-centered to other-centered. And in learning to be a man for others, he encounters God's justice. When you and I think of justice, we think of uh, the rule of various laws in our community, state, and nation. Um, and, and that is a human reflection of uh, what God's concern for justice is, and sometimes, obviously, varies a great deal from how God tells us we should rule ourselves, especially in the United States in some key areas having to do with life. But what we understand in our families and in our faith is that justice is remembering the things that we owe to God, and because we owe things to God, we owe other things to other people. And this is fundamentally what justice is. And then the third thing that Abraham learns is a disposition uh, for holiness, an orientation to be being set apart for God. You know, in the concept of holiness in the Old Testament, it's this idea of being a chosen people, a people set apart. And what kind of happens in his, Israel's history, and I think you're probably aware of it, is the Jewish people get kind of ossified, you know, like uh, fossilized. They just grow up in this inward-looking community. It's why there's very little evangelization that Israel carries on um, historically. Christianity, was, which is a form of the, uh, the religion of the people of Israel that comes out of the first century, really comes out strongly, strongly evangelical because the Lord told them to go out to all nations. But that was pregnant, if you will, contained in the promise in chapter 12 where God says to Abram, I'll make you a blessing on all nations. And so that blessing really is the Catholic faith, the Christian Christianity is taken out at large and, uh, to baptize. And what is the understanding of Christianity in regard to holiness? It's not a nation, just a nation set apart or a church set apart. It's also about personal holiness, which is there in, as you watch Abraham grow from the Abram that's called in Ur of the Chaldees to the Abram that's willing to sacrifice even his own son, which God does not require of Abram, but it is an image of what the Father will do in the New Testament as God the Father allows his son to be destroyed um, you know, by the wickedness and the sins of the world. Uh, it's really a reversal from the story of Noah, right? where God destroys all sinners. 
uh, as opposed to the New Testament where God allows himself to be destroyed for the sake of sinners. And so it's something about the movement of holiness to perfection, learning to love as God loves. And that's a, uh, the blessing of the saints, like St. Therese of Lisieux or St. Francis, St. John Paul II, any of our saints. And then the fourth aspect of, the, of Genesis is a way of life that has a reverence for the divine. And the reverence for the divine is seen in Judaism in the role of the temple in Jewish life, the, uh, fundamentally the role of the Sabbath, I should say, then the role of the temple and the role of the synagogue in Jesus' time, which is really a, uh, something that appeared in uh, Israel's history um, after the return from Babylon. And so there is this growth, this change, this development of the faith of Israel uh, that ultimately leads to our parish church, our diocese, and the Catholic church. And so those four things that are at the heart of, um, of how it is that we see uh, the call of God to Abram and all of Abram's descendants, which are you and me, that we freely choose God, that we have a concern for justice to God and one another, we have a disposition towards holiness, and we live a life founded in reverence for God. It's why we keep holy the day that Jesus rose from the dead. But at the heart of it is the notion of patriarchy. Patriarchy comes from two words, patria, which means family, and arche, which means rule. So it's the rule of the family. And you know from your own experience of being an American, and people have such different family experiences. Even my listeners have different family experiences. I had a mom and dad that were very strong, very loving, and they really enabled their children to become adults and go out in life and be successful in different walks of life. Other families, it seems the parents just dominate, uh, hover over their kids, make all the decisions for their kids, and it's harder for ch children to launch and be adults. And so in that dichotomy I just drew for you is this idea of the patriarchy as a blessing, and the patriarchy is a curse. And the story of Abram allowing his family and allowing Isaac to go and make his own decisions, which is part of the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And not all of them are good. This is just like a family. Till you get to the grandson Jacob, who has 12 sons by four different women, two legally wearied wives, two his mistresses or concubines um, in Old Testament terminology. But in the, the story of the patriarchy, there are these strong men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But also in the story of Genesis are these equally strong Jewish mothers, Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, and Rachel. Sarah, Abraham's wife, Rebecca, Isaac's wife, Leah, and Rachel, Jacob's wife. You know, it's also the story of polygamy, multiple wives, because it goes until, you know, until like Solomon has like a thousand wives. I don't know how he can be buried to a thousand women. But there is this trajectory in Judaism that comes into Christianity. And Jesus is very clear about it when he, when he attacks polygamy and says you have one wife and you don't divorce her because that's very strong, especially in the Gospel of Matthew. But in the Old Testament, there is this problem in the family of this complete commitment to one woman as opposed to polygamy. But around Abraham and Isaac, you see 
at least the ideal of marriage to one woman, woman though apparently there are still concubines involved, uh, and so that it's not a paradigm of how families should be, even though fundamentalist Mormons think you're supposed to go back and live the life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, that is not the message of the Old Testament. Patriarchy at its best is the answer to patriarchy at its worst. Patriarchy at its best is a loving husband towards his only wife and a loving wife towards her only husband who make their marriage about their children. Because we say in the Catholic Church is that marriage is about the good of the spouses and so marriage should bring out the best in husband and wife. This is what friendship and love do. And then it's for the procreation and education of children, not by just sending them to a Catholic school, but by teaching them how to be adults. And so patriarchy at its worst is control, domination, sexual abuse, violence, and that's also in the story of the Old Testament. And so what does this understanding of patriarchy at its best and patriarchy at its worst have to do with the gospel? Because remember, that's how it starts. What does the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as it starts in Genesis 12, which I read to you, have to do with the transfiguration? What I would tell you is, is that Jesus is the light of the world and that to understand the role of the family, the role of the mother of uh, in our families, the role of the Father is to see Jesus as the light and that how the rule of families and the role of families in the world rightly understand, rightly understood Gary's God's light into the world. On the other hand, abusive families, families that are full of domination and manipulation and control, which is patriarchy at its worst, especially when it's expressed in male domination of everything, um, this carries something other than God's light into the world. So let's take a moment and turn to the story of the Transfiguration. And so patriarchy, the rule of the family, we think of it as the rule of the father because pater is the Latin name for father. But patria is family, arche is ruler, patriarchy is about the rule of the family. And at the heart of the, a healthy family is a healthy marriage, a husband's love for his wife, a wife for his husband. Think about how that's present in the Catholic Church, uh, the role of the father and the role of the marriage, because we say that Christ is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. And St. Paul, Jesus, spend time talking about the love of the bridegroom for the bride. And most of scripture is about the love of the bride for the bridegroom. And then here in the transfiguration is the experience of God the Father's love for his son. And the son's reflecting that love into the world, just like Abram was called to be a blessing on all nations. And so the gospel for the, the second Sunday of Lent is from Matthew 17. Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, conversing with them. Then Peter said to Jesus in reply, 
Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was speaking, behold, a bright cloud cast a shadow over them. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Think of all the things that I talked to you about, about Abram, about holiness and obedience to God and the love of God and the love of nature as being present here in the transfiguration and how the transfiguration completes uh, the Old Testament. So you remember Moses went up on Mount Sinai on the seventh day. That would be the Sabbath in the Jewish calendar. On Matthew it says after six days, so the seventh day, Jesus goes up on the mountain, just like Moses. And Moses takes three companions, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. Jesus takes his three disciples, Peter, James, and John, who will be with them in that other garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. And then Moses' face shines with glory as he comes down from the mountain, though he's not aware of it. He has to cover it with a veil in the book of Exodus. Jesus' face shines like the sun, uh, and it's not a reflected light. Uh, it is uh, that Jesus is the source of light because he is the Son of God. And then the glory cloud overshadows Moses. That's always the presence of God on a mountain or in a temple. That's how the story is told in the Old Testament about God's presence going from Mount Sinai to the temple in Jerusalem. And then in the Transfiguration, the temple glory cloud that disappeared basically after the destruction of the uh, of the temple that the glory cloud appears once again on the mount of transfiguration uh, god speaks to moses out of the cloud and the voice of the father speaks uh, to the disciples out of the cloud you notice he doesn't address jesus he addresses the disciples the voice of the fathers listen to my son because there's already this interior conversation of the Holy Trinity. The cloud, the Holy Spirit, the voice, God the Father, and then the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. And so Jesus is the glory and the light of God that shines in the world. That is why we're talking about this on the second Sunday of Lent, because Lent really is about learning how to follow Jesus more closely in our families, in our entire life. And so that the story of the transfiguration is about the revelation of the Son and the revelation of a holy way of life. You know, there's a couple interesting things I want to point out about the transfiguration before we move on to the third part of this podcast. But one of the things I want to point out is the presence of Moses and Elijah. And it's the community of the, communion of the saints, you know, with some... Uh, uh, very fundamentalist uh, Protestant sects. They don't believe in prayer to the, to the saints. But here we have Moses and Elijah con conferring with Jesus, and they'd been dead for a thousand years plus before Jesus' life. So obviously the communion of the saints and their intercession of the saints on our behalf as president of the Transfiguration because they're talking to Jesus about him leading an exodus out of this world, his resurrection and ascension. And so... Um, the other thing that I'd like to point out about it, and it's come out in other places, you know, about how it is that we read the Old Testament, that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament is the same God. It's a point I've made before that we read the Old Testament through Jesus' colored lenses. 
Um, and so what do we take out of this, this story of the transfiguration? Well, God's family is all alive in God. Um, we're brothers and sisters of Christ, but we're all in that spiritual place of being the firstborn son. We are all chosen. Uh, God chose the people in Abraham in order that his light might come to the world, and that's what the transfiguration is. And so part of that light is this light of uh, marriage and the meaning of family in the world. And so let's take a moment and turn to that in the last section of Oral Valley Catholic. So I began this podcast by talking about Abram and how God had pivoted from working in all humanity, which just ends up in this division of humanity, to picking a family, your family, and working there and calling them to holiness, calling them to obedience, to hear the word of God, calling them to justice. Um, and this is experienced in marriage in the nuptial blessing. And I know that as I'm speaking, I speak to celibates, I speak to single people who want to be married, I speak probably to single people who feel very uncomfortable about marriage, I speak to those who are happily married, those who are divorced and single and not sure what God has for them. I'm speaking to people who are divorced and remarried, perhaps outside the church. And remember that this blessing which comes into the world through families, affects all of us because God's blessing comes to us through families, the family we hope that we have, the families that have influenced our life. And so our own desire to be part of this blessing, it's a blessing for all of us, not just for husband and wife, but as you think about how I explain this blessing on the family as like Abraham as being a blessing on nations, families being a blessing on all of us, and the call of your family to be a blessing on especially those people who are suffering in isolation or just not sure what the heck the next thing is for them. Think of the hope of this nuptial blessing. And so this is what's read just before communion in the marriage liturgy. O God, who by your mighty power created all things out of nothing, and when you had set in place the beginnings of the universe, formed man and woman in your own image, making the woman an inseparable helpmate to the man, that they might be no longer two, but one flesh, and taught that when you were pleased to make one, must never be divided. O God, who consecrated the bond of marriage by so great a mystery, that in the wedding covenant you foreshadowed the sacrament of Christ and his church. O God, by whom woman is joined to man, and the companionship they had in the beginning is endowed with the one blessing, not forfeited by original sin, nor washed away by the flood. Look now with favor on these your servants, joined together in marriage, who ask to be strengthened by your blessing. Send out on them the grace of the Holy Spirit, and pour your love into their hearts, that they may, be, may remain faithful in the marriage covenant. May the grace of love and peace abide in your, in your daughter, and let her always follow the example of those holy women, I insert, those Jewish mothers, whose praises are sung in the scriptures. 
May her husband entrust his heart to her so that acknowledging her as his equal and his joint heir to the life of grace, he may show her due honor and cherish her always with the love that Christ has for his church. And now, Lord, we implore you, may these your servants hold fast to the faith and keep your commandments made one in the flesh. May they be blameless in all they do. And with the strength that comes from the gospel, may they bear true witness to Christ before all. May they be blessed with children and prove themselves virtuous parents who live to see their children's children. And grant that, reaching at last together the fullness of years for which they hope, they may come to life for the blessed in the kingdom of heaven. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. I hope that your life has been blessed by a marriage like that. Because marriage is this sacrament, this holy sign of God's in our world. And this blessing I would point out for Abram, it really didn't come true in his own life. I mean, uh, be a blessing on the, all the nations really followed thousands of years later in Jesus, right? And so when we look for the blessings of marriage and even whatever our state in life is, we remember that when we participate in the memories of the people of God, which we do at Mass, when we participate in the sacrifice of Christ at the altar, which we do at Mass. When we participate and are in communion with God, we do at Mass. We participate in this blessing, even though the experience of it may be something like Abram hoping for God's fulfillment. I hope God uh, blesses you and fulfills his promises in your life and gives you hope. But I would point out that I will say at your funeral, if I ever get the chance, that all lives are essentially unfinished symphonies. There's always something we left undone, something we wished what was different, because this is not heaven. God calls us to a completion in heaven. That's why he sends his son in the transfiguration to light the way. God bless you this Lent, and uh, follow him faithfully. Peace to you, brothers and sisters. <laughs>